Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. In 1974, the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was unleashed on the world. Critics were quick to trash it, but audiences loved it. The Los Angeles Times called it despicable. Other major critics were quick to denounce the film for its violence and gore. The film was banned outright in several countries, and many theaters stopped showing it in response to complaints about the graphic content. But that sort of criticism only seemed to bring the audiences flocking to see the movie. The film grossed more than $30 million in the year it was released, making it the 12th highest grossing movie of 1974. And today it's often cited as a horror classic. It's also the film that's credited with ushering in the wave of slasher films of the early 1980s. Leatherface, the hulking chainsaw-wielding maniac at the center of the film, was the precursor to so many other faceless villains like Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movies. But all those movies, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Prom Night, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and so on, all have one thing in common that sets them apart from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In those movies, it's always a lone killer stalking and murdering the unsuspecting teens. Whereas in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a whole family of murderers. It's an unusual phenomenon when an entire family decides to work together to commit murder, but it has happened. Probably the most famous incident in modern history we can cite is the Manson family murders. Although in that case, none of Charles Manson's followers were actually related to one another. They just called themselves a family. And it's difficult to determine the line in that case between cult and family. One such incident of a real family that worked together to commit murder occurred just a few years ago in Russia. In 2013, Russian police arrested a nursery school teacher, Inessa Tarvadeeva, and her husband, dentist Roman Potkapayev, worked together to commit at least 30 murders and countless robberies. They counted among their victims six police officers and several children. The couple enlisted the aid of Inessa's 25-year-old daughter from her first marriage, and Inessa's 13-year-old granddaughter as active participants in the crimes. Greed was the primary motivating factor in their crimes. They would often pretend to be a typical Russian family on a camping trip, then lure in an unsuspecting victim, rob, and murder them. If we look back at American history, there's one case in particular that echoes the family of Russian serial murderers in many ways. Back in the early 1870s, a murderous clan of serial killers settled in isolated Labette County, Kansas. They may have been responsible for at least 11 murders, and probably more, the gruesome details of which earned them a particularly apt nickname, the Bloody Benders. I'm Nate Hale with a reminder that the family that slays together doesn't necessarily stay together, and this is The Conspirators.
It should come as no surprise to anyone that the American government has a pretty terrible history with Native Americans. After the Civil War, the United States government moved the Osage Indians out of Labette County to a new Indian territory in what would eventually become Oklahoma. Afterwards, the newly vacant land was turned over to homesteaders moving in from the east. In October 1870, five families of spiritualists settled in and around the Osage Township on the western side of Labette County. Within the first year, two of those families would move away. Two of the others mostly kept to themselves. Then there were the Benders. John Bender Sr. and John Bender Jr. were the first of the family members that arrived in the area. They registered 160 acres adjacent to the Great Osage Trail, which at the time was the only open trail headed west. They built a cabin, a barn, and a well on their land. In the fall of 1871, Elvira Bender and her daughter Kate arrived on the property, and they went about dividing the cabin into two rooms with a canvas wagon cover. The front part of the cabin was converted into a general store, and that's also where the Benders set up their kitchen and dining table. Here, a weary traveler could stop and get a warm meal in their belly before hitting the open road again. Or if they were too tired from their travels, they could sleep in a cot overnight before moving on. Ma and Pa Bender mostly spoke German, and their accents were so guttural that even when they spoke English, nobody understood them. Pa Bender was estimated to be about 60 years old, while Ma was probably in her 40s. She was so unfriendly to their neighbors, most of the locals ended up referring to her as a she-devil. John Jr. was around 25, handsome, with auburn hair and a well-groomed mustache. He spoke English fluently with a German accent, but he also had a reputation as a half-wit that came from his tendency to often burst into fits of laughter for no apparent reason. Kate was the outgoing one. She was around 23 years old, attractive and cultivated. She spoke English very well, with almost no accent. She claimed to be a psychic and a healer, and she distributed flyers throughout town advertising her supernatural gifts and her ability to cure illnesses. She also conducted seances and gained some local notoriety for the lectures she gave on spirituality and her advocacy of free love. It was Kate that drew the customers into the inn. If it had been left up to Ma and Pa, it's doubtful anyone would have stayed with them based on their personalities alone. Of course, that's only part of the story about the Benders. Truth was that Bender wasn't their real name, and the only ones who were probably related were Ma and her daughter Kate. Pa Bender was born Sean Flickinger sometime around 1810, and he hailed from either Germany or the Netherlands. Ma Bender was born Elmira Meek in the Adirondack Mountains, and she'd had 12 children with other men. She married several times before settling down with Pa, and each of those previous husbands died of mysterious head wounds before moving on to the next man. Kate was Ma Bender's fifth child, and she'd been born Eliza Griffith, although later she lived for a period of time under the alias Sarah Eliza Davis. John Jr.'s real name was John Gebhardt, and some reports suggest he may really have been Kate's husband, and not her brother. In May 1871, the body of a man named Jones was discovered in Drum Creek. His skull had been crushed and his throat slit. Some people suspected the owner of the Drum Creek claim had committed the murder, but the man was never arrested. In February 1872, the bodies of two more men were found with similar injuries to Jones. By 1873, so many bodies had been discovered and so many other travelers had gone missing that the trail gained a reputation as a place to be avoided at all costs. Most people thought horse thieves and outlaws must be staking out the trail for victims. The locals began forming a number of vigilance committees and performing citizens' arrests of suspicious individuals. But in most cases, the authorities later released the arrestees for lack of evidence. 
the winter of 1872, a man named George Lonker and his infant daughter left Independence, Kansas to resettle in Iowa following the death of his wife. They were never seen again. In the spring of 1873, Lonker's former neighbor, Dr. William York, got worried and went out looking for them. He questioned homesteaders all along the trail until he reached Fort Scott, Kansas on March 9th. After that, he turned around and headed home for Independence, only he never got there. The doctor had two powerful brothers, Colonel Ed York, who lived in Fort Scott, and Alexander York, a member of the Kansas State Senate. Both brothers knew of William's travel plans, so when he failed to return home, Ed and Alexander launched a massive search for him. Colonel York led a company of 50 men, questioning every traveler along the trail and visiting all homesteads. On May 4th, Colonel York arrived at the Bender home. He explained that his brother had gone missing while passing through the area, and he thought he'd made plans to stay at their inn. They told the colonel they hadn't seen him, but suggested perhaps he had been delayed or run into some trouble with Indians. York agreed this was possible, then he stayed for dinner. Kate was a charmer, and the colonel enjoyed her company, even though the other benders weren't anywhere near as hospitable. There was one moment where Colonel York was alone in the front room that he happened to notice something glittering underneath one of the beds. He pulled the object out and was startled to realize it was his brother William's locket on a gold chain. Colonel York crept out of the house with the locket stuffed in his pocket. As he walked across the dirt yard back to his horse, he caught a glimpse of a lantern swaying in the distance. It was Pa Bender and John Jr., and they were digging a large hole in the garden in the middle of the night. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. About a month later, on April 3rd, Colonel York got word that a woman had fled the Bender's cabin after Ma Bender threatened her at knife point. This time, Colonel York returned to the cabin with a group of armed men. He tried to get Ma to explain herself, but she acted like she didn't understand English. Pa Bender and John Jr. tried to step in and deny the woman's accusations. But then Ma Bender grew enraged and began cursing at York in perfectly good English. She screeched that the woman she chased away was a witch who'd cursed her coffee and that she'd only threatened her to scare her off. Then she abruptly cut herself off when she realized she had just let everyone know she understood English better than she'd been letting on. Kate tried to calm things down by offering her services as a clairvoyant to try to locate York's brother. York and his men left, but by now they were convinced the Benders and a neighboring family, the Roaches, had something to do with Dr. York's disappearance. York's men wanted to hang them all in the spot, but Colonel York insisted they needed evidence. Soon after, the town held a meeting to discuss the many local disappearances. More than 75 people showed up for the meeting, including Pa Bender and his son, John Jr. The townspeople agreed to get a search warrant to search every property between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek. Three days after the township meeting, a rancher was driving past the Bender property when he realized it had been abandoned. The rancher reported this to the township trustee, but poor weather prevented them from putting together a search party for several days. Finally, nearly a week later, several hundred volunteers turned out to search the property, including Colonel York. 
When they got there, they found the benders were gone, and the cabin had been cleaned out of food, clothing, and personal belongings. A horrendous odor was coming from a trapdoor beneath one of the beds. The trapdoor had been nailed shut, and when they finally pried it open, it revealed a hidden room six feet below the cabin. Clotted blood covered the stone slab floor, causing the terrible stench. Workmen physically moved the cabin out of the way and began to smash up the floor, but no bodies were found in the hidden room. They began probing around the area surrounding the cabin, until they found a body buried in the vegetable garden. It was that of Dr. William York, Colonel York's brother. Seven more victims were found that night, with an eighth discovered the next day. All the victims' throats had been slashed and their skulls mashed in. By the time digging was done, ten victims in total were found at the Bender Farm, but as many as 21 victims have been possibly attributed to them. Among the bodies found on their property were that of George Lonker and his infant daughter, as well as an unidentified eight-year-old girl. A Kansas newspaper reported that the crowd was so enraged after finding the bodies that they snatched up a friend of the Benders named Brockman and strung him up from a beam inside the Benders' cabin until he lost consciousness. Then they cut him down, revived him, and interrogated him for anything he knew about the Benders' whereabouts. They repeated this twice more without getting any useful information from him before finally letting him go. Several weeks later, Addison Roach and his son-in-law, William Buxton, were arrested as accessories to the murders. They had been caught attempting to dispose of some of the victim's stolen goods. In total, 12 people were arrested in connection to the crimes, including a member of one of the original vigilance committees, who had been caught forging a letter to one of the victim's relatives claiming the deceased had arrived safely at their destination. Word of the murders spread like wildfire, and more than 3,000 curiosity seekers descended on the town from as far away as New York and Chicago. Souvenir hunters took the Bender cabin apart completely, all the way down to the bricks lining the cellar walls. Alexander York, the Kansas state senator, offered a $1,000 reward for the Bender's capture. On May 17th, Kansas Governor Thomas Osborne offered an additional $2,000 reward for apprehension of the murderous family. Investigators eventually pieced together how the Benders committed their crimes. The Benders would size up visitors to their inn and determine which ones had money. They would then urge the wealthy travelers to sit at the place of honor at the head of the table, which just so happened to be right in front of the dividing curtain that blocked off the rest of the cabin. While dining, one of the benders would step out from behind the curtain and bash in the unsuspecting victim's skull with a hammer. Then they would cut the victim's throat and dump the body down the trapdoor into the cellar. Once the victim was down in the cellar, the benders would strip the body of its clothes and any valuables and bury it somewhere on the property. More than a dozen bullet holes were found in the floor and walls of the secret room, indicating that not all the victims had been dead once they were down there, and that some of them probably fought back. One witness came forward who recalled a night when he had dined at the inn but declined to sit at the head of the table, causing Ma Bender to become enraged and begin cursing at him. When he saw the male Benders emerging from behind the curtain, he decided to flee. Other witnesses came forward later with similar stories. Some people claimed to have come to the cabin seeking spiritual guidance from Kate. During a seance, Kate would make the customer sit in front of the curtain while she allegedly made all sorts of spooky manifestations appear. One man reportedly became terrified when he began hearing strange whispers coming from behind him and asked to be allowed to move to another seat. When Kate angrily ordered him to stay put, the man bolted out of the cabin, never to return. Though robbery appeared to be their primary motive, the Benders only received about $4,600 and some livestock from their victims. 
News reporters and curiosity seekers flocked to the area, and for a time, the bloody benders that they'd become to be known became a media sensation. A search party scoured the prairie for the benders and eventually found the family's wagon abandoned several miles away with a team of starving horses. Investigators were able to confirm the family members bought train tickets in the town of Thayer, 12 miles away. Ma and Pa Bender bought tickets on the Leavenworth, Lawrence, and Galveston Railroad for Humboldt, while John Jr. and Kate hitched a ride on a train bound for Texas. In the years that followed, a number of people were arrested or killed whom authorities thought were one member of the Bender family or another. But no conclusive evidence was ever provided that they got the right people. One vigilante group claimed to have shot and killed Ma, Pa, and John Jr., and then burned Kate alive. Another group claimed to have caught and killed the family and tossed their bodies in the Verdigree River. Yet another claimed to have killed the entire family during a gunfight, then burying their bodies in the prairie. But no one ever claimed the $3,000 in reward money. One rumor claims that Ma murdered Pa over an argument they had. Another rumor was that Pa committed suicide by drowning himself in Lake Michigan in 1884. On October 31, 1889, a couple of women named Mrs. Almira Monroe and Mrs. Eliza Davis were arrested in the town of Niles, Michigan. Witnesses came forward weeks later who confirmed the two women were really Ma and Kate Bender, based on tintype photographs of the women. Eliza Davis allegedly even signed an affidavit admitting that Elmira Monroe was really Ma Bender. The pair were extradited to Oswego, Kansas for trial, and a hearing was scheduled for February 1889 but was then held over until May. But the county was unwilling to foot the expense to board the two women for three months. Plus, the evidence against them wasn't very strong, so the women were released, and they were never heard from again. No one really knows what happened to the Bloody Benders, or if any of the many rumors of their fates held any truth to them. There is one other story that bears mentioning, based on the rather compelling source. In 1937... An acclaimed author was on a book tour when she gave a speech detailing her own family's encounter with the Bloody Benders. The Benders lived approximately halfway between the author's own rather famous house and the town of Independence. The author's father would sometimes get water from the Benders' well, but for some reason he refused to ever stop at the Benders' inn. The father had an uneasy feeling about them. This was partly based on how odd he thought it was that the Benders kept such a large garden, but seemed to have very little actually growing in it. One night, shortly after the bodies were discovered on the Bender's property, the author's pa grabbed his rifle and went out to join the search party. When her pa returned sometime later, he refused to talk about what had happened, only to say that the matter was closed and that the Benders would never be found. That particular author had a lot of interesting stories about her family's life in rural Kansas, and she'd found enormous commercial success writing those stories down and publishing them. But this was one story in particular that she chose to never publish because it didn't really fit the family-friendly nature of the rest of her stories. The author, of course, was Laura Ingalls Wilder, and those stories were published under the name The Little House on the Prairie. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. I've really been enjoying bringing my stories to you, and I hope you enjoy listening to them as well. If you do, one of the best things you can do to support us is by downloading the show on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks, as always, for listening.